The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We are actually going to do the largest infrastructure bill ever in America's history. The more extraordinary the extraordinary measures get, the harder it is to put pressure on Congress. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Why wouldn't you try a primary against President Biden if he were to decide to run again? You guys know you speak to a pretty educated audience. The debt ceiling is a completely manufactured crisis. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So how many plates can a president spin? Already making the sales pitch on the infrastructure bill that passed last week. Whipping votes, twisting arms for a social spending plan that's not yet complete. President Biden adds another, the Federal Reserve. Now spinning as well with the Bloomberg scoop today that Lael Brainerd was interviewed for the top job at the Fed, and that is on top of the three potential seats to fill that we discussed yesterday. We're going to spin each of those plates this hour. We'll start with Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia, on the timeline for the Biden economic plan and how the Congressional Progressive Caucus is strategizing for possible votes next week. Later, we'll be joined by Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief Peggy Collins to dig into the politics behind the Fed, the risks and potential opportunities for this White House And the panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis is with us for the hour, along with Max Burns, Democratic strategist, founder of Third Degree Strategy. The president, as we told you, is heading to Baltimore tomorrow to make the case for his economic agenda, starting with what has already been passed as Biden and cabinet secretaries fan out around the country with travel plans the next couple of weeks to sell the storyline. Yesterday, we heard from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in the White House briefing room. Today was the Commerce Secretary's turn. Gina Raimondo was asked how money from this infrastructure bill, now passed, will be distributed to states and eventually to projects. Everyone gets $100 million. Beyond that, it'll be based upon unserved, based upon need. We're going to give out a grant per state. And each state will then give grants to sub-grantees on the ground. We are, as I just said, very focused on equity and making sure there's affordability and ubiquity, which means we have to be flexible. Did you get all that? Every state starts with $100 million, then more based on need and equity. This is not to be confused with shovel-ready. Romando telling reporters there today major construction projects would not start until, as she put it, well into next year. The exception, broadband, broadband Internet access. Some people could begin receiving it by the end of this year. We've heard that before from the president, Romando, confirming that or reiterating it. Others, though, you get out in the rural areas, you're going to have to wait a lot longer. Could be months, maybe well into next year toward the following year as fiber is laid down in the countryside. That's the hard infrastructure. The soft infrastructure, they say, could come together as soon as next week. We're still going with this till it's not happening. That's when Speaker Pelosi agreed with progressives to vote 
on the Build Back Better plan, right? It's the week of November 15th, they said, and we talk about it right now. With Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat from the inner eastern suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm glad you're here with us today, Congressman. Welcome. I wonder if you expect a vote on that bill next week. Uh, yeah, Joe, uh, thank you for having me. And we are excited uh, having reached agreement with uh, some of the House uh, conservatives uh, who have pledged in writing to support the Build Back Better mm-hmm. bill, which uh, we will consider during the week of November the 15th, so next week. Looking forward to that bill passing out of the House. Well, that would be a major development, and, and I know that those moderate or, or some uh, call them conservative Democrats wanted to see CBO scores. They wanted to be able to sit down with the bill. We talked about this quite a bit yesterday. It's been quite a job, I guess, for the, the Congressional uh, Budget Office to get all of this done. Do you think that'll happen to satisfy their needs? Well, I'm hopeful that uh, that a um, an assessment will come back from uh, the uh, Budget Office, uh, putting a number, and I expect that number to be uh, deficit or debt neutral. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it may even, Build Back Better may even raise enough revenue, revenue to put a dent in the, uh, in the nation's debt. Where you are in the, as I mentioned, the suburbs of Atlanta, you're not dealing with the same challenges of rural areas, Congressman. I wonder what in this infrastructure bill just passed, the BIF, as opposed to the BBB, is bringing constituents in your areas that you represent that they did not have before. Obviously, there was access to broadband. Will this make it more affordable? Yeah, definitely. $65 billion is in uh, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill for broadband. And broadband uh, needs to be extended not just uh, to rural areas. Uh, Those areas are certainly needy, but areas like the one that I represent where uh, you find high concentrations of uh, black people and other people of color, Mm -hmm. uh, we too uh, have gone without uh, uh, extension of broadband into our areas. And so suburban areas, urban areas, and rural areas will uh, benefit from um, from that investment in broadband extension. But things like transit, uh, transit is going to uh, come to many rural areas as uh, transit uh, is uh, increase the capacity, yep. uh, the expansion of service uh, for, for transit is going to happen in areas like the one that I represent, which is a, a suburban area. There's also money for rural uh, transit uh, for the first time. And so this is, uh, you know, $39 billion in uh, public transit is is the most significant investment that's been made that will be made in transit, uh, public transit in uh, 70 years. Since Amtrak, they say, right? So with that said, though, we just heard from the Commerce Secretary, Congressman, uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo uh, asked, you know, how much of this will be in place? How much of this will actually touch people's lives before they have to make important decisions in the midterm elections? It sounds like it's going to take years to get all this done. Well, this is actually a uh, bill that will uh, unfold over the next 10 years, but we will see uh, uh, 
you know, uh, upgrading and maintenance of roads and bridges. Uh, that work is going to start immediately. Over over uh, 600,000 new jobs will be created uh, uh, as a result of passing uh, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal. And that and happens in the next year, have, for instance, before yeah, people gonna, go to the polls. That's, that's going to happen uh, uh, pretty immediately. Uh, new jobs being created. We're going to see an investment in um, electric electric vehicle charging stations. Yeah. I mean, that money is needed right now. Those services, those charging stations, over 43,000 charging stations uh, being paid for under the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, electric buses that are going to clean up the communities that they serve, instead of spewing diesel fuel, sure. will have clean electric buses. Uh, well, I ask you about the timeline because it, you know, it does come up a lot, and 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 you're still dealing with this massive potential piece of legislation next week, Congressman uh, Johnson. You say you expect the vote on that, or at least for the House to take it up. I think were the words that you used next week. Uh, there's one thing that not a lot of people are talking about right now because our attention gets pulled in so many different directions, Congressman, and that is the debt ceiling. The fact that we're going to have to deal with this debt ceiling issue again on the 3rd of December. Are you worried about another collision of deadlines? Well, yeah, I am uh, concerned like uh, everyone is in terms of Republicans pay, playing a chicken with uh, a debt ceiling vote. Uh, it's something that we're going to have to um, overcome. Uh, Why not just get it all with, done through reconciliation? Wouldn't that make it easier after what we went through the last couple months? Well, it, it's certainly a possibility. Um, when the Senate votes on the Build Back Better uh, legislation that the House will pass out next week, uh, they have an opportunity to uh, do just that. Would you support and, that uh, move we'll to stuff happens. it all into one package? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean that's what budget reconciliation is all about. I mean, the debt ceiling is the essence of uh, of uh, revenue and uh, and spending. Uh, it falls squarely within reconciliation, and and if the Senate sees fit to take up reconciliation with uh, the Build Back Better legislation, uh, then that will be fine with me. Congressman, I just want to mention while you're with us the loss of a colleague of yours, Max Cleland. Uh, Of course, a senator from Georgia served honorably in the Vietnam War, died at his home in Atlanta at 79 today. I wonder how well you knew him and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I would run into Max uh, from time to time, uh, he was uh, a warm-hearted individual, always treated me kindly. Uh, whenever we would see each other, um, most of the time he would grab me with his one arm and pull me towards him and uh, for a hug. And I don't care whether or not we were both sweating in the heat <laughs> or not, uh, but he that's just the kind of guy that he was. Uh, uh, he he was a, a, a human being who won over adversity. He was irreplaceable. Irre, 
he was uh Mr. Indefatigable. Um <laughs> he you could not break him. Yeah. You could not make him stop living. From Georgia's fourth congressional district, thank you, Congressman. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Governor Sununu to run for re-election rather than seek Senate. And we've been waiting for this one. The Republican governor of New Hampshire says thanks, no thanks to a run against Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. Listen to his rationale from a news conference today. We have Governor Sununu. But my responsibility is not to the gridlock and politics of Washington. Uh, it's to the citizens of New Hampshire. And I'd rather push myself 120 miles an hour delivering wins for New Hampshire uh, than to slow down, end up on Capitol Hill, debating partisan politics without results. That's why I'm going to run for a fourth term. And I'd be honored if the people of New Hampshire would elect me again as their governor. Senator Hassan was considered one of the most vulnerable Democrats in the Senate. So what does this mean for the midterms or are Democrats handling those all on their own? We assemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, along with Max Burns today, Democratic strategist, founder of Third Degree Strategies. Rick, did Chris Sununu just keep that seat in Democratic hands? Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be kind of too late to find a, a decent challenger who can create the name ID, raise the funds, and put an organization in place to even come close to replicating the popularity that Governor Sununu has. I think that would have been a Republican win in 2022, but um, back to square one. And it, early indications that I've heard is some of the other major names in the state uh, don't have appetite for the Senate and uh, make it even tougher for McConnell and his team to recruit a new uh, candidate. Max, what's your thought on this? As a lot of folks were looking to New Hampshire for being you know, part of the reason that Republicans could potentially retake the Senate, what does it mean for the body as a whole, the midterms? Yeah, I think this is definitely a gift for Democrats. Sununu was really the guy to take on Maggie Hassan here. And to, to some extent, it is uh, interesting that he decided that this was not for him temperamentally, the Senate. And I think there may that may be a very legitimate response from Chris Sununu, that there are people who just do not feel that the Senate is the place to get work done if mm. you want to get ambitious work done <laughs> as a politician. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. going to be interesting to see how this shakes out as we get into more uh, competitive areas in the middle of the country. I think you're starting to see a similar mirror of what we saw last cycle, which is a lot of Democrats now starting to announce that. They're not going to seek re-election, and that is always a bad sign for the party in power. I want to talk to you about this, uh, this Rick, this idea that everyone sits around in the Senate and does nothing. You might actually agree. I don't know, but you spent enough of your life uh, working in the Senate and, and working with Senator John McCain, kind of understanding how the body works. That I don't know, maybe people outside of the Senate just don't get it, but this, this impression that these guys in suits kind of lay around and do nothing all day and have nothing to show for it. 
Yeah, I think that's a way overstatement. I think there are a lot of really great things that happened in the United States Senate. Some of the greatest reforms and opportunities created in the last century have uh, come through government. Uh, now, I totally disagree that government ought to be driving our economy and things like that, but that's mm-hmm. that's nonetheless. I mean, you know, this is where the planning and, and, and funding for our national defense and security goes. Virtually 100% of the time is a bipartisan uh, effort uh, through collaboration. This is where technology policy is done, usually through bipartisan cooperation. I mean, media does have a tendency to focus on the hotness, right, when, when, yes. when there's a big fight. Uh, but that is a small percentage of the activity of this, of this Congress. I mean, look at what just happened last week. You know, there was a bipartisan effort to push infrastructure reform met with a bipartisan effort in the House. And yet we must have spent thousands of hours talking about the partisan rifts that made that, you know, require three more months than it probably needed to uh, to get passed. So ultimately, uh, government does function. I don't think anybody thinks it functions smoothly, but I don't think our framers wanted it to function smoothly. They wanted it to be a hard thing. That's uh, so true and something that people uh, just don't think about. When they watch this so closely, that minutia, like you're talking about, Rick, day in and day out, I'd like to uh, expand the conversation to the the midterms broadly now. Rick, we haven't spoken since that bill was passed on Friday night. How important will it be uh, now that that's done and and the potential for another package to be done, the soft infrastructure deal next week, and actually see it, have people see it in their towns, traffic cones, cranes, things actually happening? How much... Is that going to matter as opposed to, well, the money's approved. We got it done. Well, the first thing that matters is the public selling of that, right? I mean, the public has actually only heard about the controversy surrounding this. They don't really tune in to the details because yeah. it doesn't. it's not law, right? When it becomes law, then they say, okay, now we'll pay attention because half the time Congress doesn't actually get the job done. And so I am shocked that the Biden administration hasn't done a full court press putting every single cabinet member on the road into key states, into key districts, selling an accomplishment that at any other time in the last 10 years would have been a mighty occurrence, a bipartisan infrastructure bill worth trillions of dollars, a trillion dollars. And yet it's like, you know, former governor Gina Raimondo was like the talking head today on, you know, one small aspect of it. It, it, I don't get it. I know some of it's because they've got a lot more to do and they've now focused and shifted their focus to the Build Back Butter plan. But I think that's a mistake. I think that if you don't sell it to the public, they won't think it's important. A lot more talk today about the Fed than we sometimes get on a Fed day here in Washington. After reading on the terminal, Lael Brainerd interviewed for the big job, Fed chair, during her visit to the White House last week. We knew she was in the building. Now we know what they were talking about. We also know she's more popular among progressives, the only Democrat on the board. And of course, President Biden is said to prefer Powell. He constantly refers to him when the issue of inflation comes up. My administration understands that if we were to ever experience unchecked inflation over the long term, That would pose a real challenge to our economy. So while we're confident that isn't what we're seeing today, we're going to remain vigilant about any response that is needed. As I made clear to Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve when we met recently, the Fed is independent, should take whatever steps it deems necessary to support a strong, durable economic recovery. The most recent reference Biden has made to Chair Powell when referring again to inflationary concerns. 
Of course, that issue has been coming up a lot. So with news of the Brainerd interview, the Quarles resignation announcement yesterday we talked about, the seat that will soon be left open by Vice Chair Richard Clarida, and a seat already open. President Biden has some big decisions to make. And what could be some big opportunities, too. So let's get into them with Peggy Collins. A great chance to talk with Bloomberg's Washington bureau chief. And Peggy, we thank you for being here. This is a big scoop. So congratulations. But though, should we we should not assume that President Biden will give Brainerd the job, right? There's a much bigger conversation here I'd love to have with you. It, it seems to me the Quarles departure gives him even more options to potentially reshape the Fed, including promoting Brainerd to that supervisory role. How do you see Joe Biden attacking all of this as a kind of a wholesale change of landscape at the Fed? So as you said, Joe, there are potentially really now an open lane for four seats for Biden to fill on the Fed. So he can really reshape the Fed in his image or in America's image, as they have talked about in terms of filling those slots. But it does leave a lot of open questions. We've been reporting this hard. As you said, my colleagues Craig Torres, Jennifer Jacobs and Saleh Mosin had the story out last night mm-hmm. that basically confirmed, as you said, that we that Last week, when Brainerd met with uh, Biden, they talked about the Fed chair slot, uh, and he met with Powell as well for for that same slot or for the renewal of him as chair for a second term. Note that his term is up in February, so they don't have a lot of time left to decide this. Yeah. And as you said, Brainerd is also a top contender for the VC of supervision, which is the seat that Quarles um, is exiting or has exited really from a technical point of view. The term was up in October, but he mm-hmm. announced yesterday that he will step aside at the end of this year. I think what we're really trying to figure out here is how does the White House decide this, the political advantage and potentially in maybe doing even more changes to the Fed and possibly putting Brainerd in the chair slot or potentially sticking with Powell another term, which has been the tradition of presidents when they first come into office until Trump, who who did change up Yellen for Powell. Yeah, I was gaming this out this morning with the with the guys on surveillance. Here we are in the in the pre dawn darkness trying to come up with a way forward here. And it, it does seem to me that with what we know in terms of progressive and moderate and, and Republican concerns and demands when it comes to the Fed, the, the growing concern about inflation on the Republican side, all the while Senator Elizabeth Warren calling Chair Powell a dangerous man, gives Joe Biden the potential for a couple of things, a couple things to accomplish. Number one, he can look like by keeping Powell in the chairmanship, can maintain continuity in the markets and, and prove to people that he's not kowtowing to progressives. But all the while, this beautiful opportunity here to elevate an individual preferred by progressives, Brainerd, into that supervisory role, and then the other seats, the Clarity seat, the others, to help diversify the Fed, more Democrats, more people of color. Isn't that a win for this White House? Well, I think, as you said, they do have four seats to play with, so that's a positive for them in terms of optionality. And there are three main issues, I think, at play for the Democrats and the progressives at the crossroads here. It's financial Mm -hmm. regulation, which Brainerd is seen as tougher than Powell on financial regulation. There's climate change, where a lot of Democrats are pushing the Fed to go further on that issue in terms of its guidance, its disclosures, its rules around that for the banking industry in particular. And then the third is the point that you made, Joe. It's diversity in terms of the Fed looking more like America and having a bit a bigger cross section of people at the yeah. top there. 
Peggy, uh, I'm coming to you uh, asking purely about politics because that's what we do on Sound On here. But how about policy? We know that Joe Biden uh, is a fan of Jay Powell. The policy seems to be working. He's He's got, I guess, just the right mild manner that that Biden wants to see presiding over this market. How much of a change in policy would come with with a Brainerd chairmanship? Some folks suggest that we would have lower interest rates for longer. What would that mean for the markets? That's a great question, Joe. So I think two things on that. Um, in terms of the dovishness, which which the market often uses that term, dovish or hawkish, when they talk about the Fed. Yeah. So Brainerd is seen as as dovish, if not more dovish than Powell, meaning that the markets think she would probably keep interest rates lower for longer until the recovery in the labor market was came back even more so. That's the view they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, they are very, you know, they are together. You know, Powell is seen as dovish as well. Well right now, and Powell and Brainerd have both talked a lot about the new framework, which which came into play in August 2020 and was announced by Powell. Right, they certain Brainerd had a lot of um, input on that, but it also is seen as as one of his signature accomplishments of his time as Fed chair. So they are both kind of pro, they are both kind of looking a lot at the labor sure. market and trying to get it back to where it was not only in February 2020, but possibly even better than that. Peggy, we find out by Thanksgiving. What do you think? That's, I mean, that is what um, Senator Sherrod Brown has said um, yeah. on our own networks, that he expects it by Thanksgiving. We're getting ready and trying to chase it down. Well, I had to put you on the spot like that. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about the big scoop. Peggy Collins, Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief with news on her team, moving markets today, getting a lot of attention. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I started this hour talking about the plates this president has spinning in the air, and the Federal Reserve is a big one right now. It's not just infrastructure and reconciliation anymore. Did I mention the debt ceiling? Oh, yeah, we did. The president does not have much time to pull a rabbit out of his hat on the Fed trick here. So let's get into it with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis is with us for the hour, along with Max Burns, Democratic strategist and founder of Third Degree Strategies. Max, as I've been saying, some presidents get the Supreme Court, others get the Fed. Apparently that's Joe Biden. So how does he make this an opportunity for his administration to actually score some points? Well, this is a great chance to offer the left something to make up for all of the things that they sacrificed on infrastructure and will soon sacrifice on Build Back Better. Uh, And that's because the left has really been skeptical of Jerome Powell and the general culture at the Fed. There's been a lot of talk about uh, resignations around insider trading. Jerome Powell made some trades himself that were not insider trading, but nonetheless looked questionable. in the broader scheme and but you're saying give Lil brainerd the job that's that's the opportunity yeah absolutely. the big job not the supervisory role but the the, the chairmanship of the fed what are republicans going to say about that i think at this point republicans are going to oppose almost anything joe biden does 
regardless of whether it's it's a progressive individual or a centrist or conservative individual, uh, we've seen that. And I don't think Joe Biden should necessarily be triangulating his policy decisions based on trying to appease Republicans who seem fairly unappeasable right now. Seems like they'd be a lot more likely to approve Jay Powell for uh, an extension here, Rick Davis. Could could Lael Brainerd even be confirmed? Yeah, I think he could be confirmed, but I think that the number one thing that Joe Biden's got to worry about is just do no harm, right? It's not like the economy is trucking along exactly how he wants it to. You know, he's had a really choppy labor market. Uh, Rates, you know, have been pushing higher and higher in the inflationary categories. I mean, the one thing he doesn't want to do is start a progression of events where he puts people in place that are going to somehow upset a very tenuous economy. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's what Republicans will be looking for. I can't imagine anybody really cares these days about the progressives. I mean, they were the holdup in the Biden economic agenda. And the fact that they're complaining about monetary policy when they can't even get their fiscal policy in order is like stunning to me. So, Well, depending on who you're talking, I mean, Elizabeth Warren would tell you it's banking regulation, it's insider trading and so forth. But Maybe I should ask this a little bit differently. Could Lael Brainerd be confirmed as the new in that new supervisory role, if, if, if we we'll call that a promotion for the case of this conversation? These are all uh, jobs that have to get Republican approval, right? Well, I think they just need uh, 51 votes. And so, so we're going to have the vice the president. Senate, Jeez, you know, all right, would, okay. would not be such a, a hard thing for the Democrats if and they you can get... actually stay together on this kind of an appointment. Right. So how do you do that with Joe Manchin? Well, I, I think you've got to actually start talking to Joe Manchin. I mean, he's actually pretty clear about the things he's for and the things he's against. Most of the noise uh, on uh, Chairman Powell's reappointment has come out of the, you know, the, 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 the progressive caucus in the House of Representatives. And so uh, but like the, I think you mentioned this earlier, the longer they delay on yeah. this pick is the less time they have to actually get a confirmation process going. They should before long start having those conversations, because if they do have a problem, with a, a Brainard uh, confirmation, then they ought to know that before Joe Biden makes his selection. Boy, yeah, the, it, there's also less time to maintain continuity in the markets here, Max. If this president finds himself being blamed for volatility, turning his back on inflation, this is obviously not what you want to start the year with or end the year with on Wall Street. But it's also it's these other deadlines. December 3rd, the debt ceiling, government funding. We haven't passed reconciliation yet, and now you're going to reshape the Fed, Max? How do you do it all? Well, I think Rick makes a great point that so much of this has been delayed and pushed down the line that Democrats have almost entirely lost momentum on a lot of issues that were broadly popular and have had the ability to move forward. Uh, But talking to Joe Manchin is never a bad idea. For better or for worse, he is an individual who loves to deal He is willing to put together sometimes overly complex uh, grand bargains. And I think there's opportunity here with Brainerd to to not just affect Fed policy, but also to play a role in maybe mediating some of this build back better uh, negotiation and giving that on one side for less of the left arguments on build back better. So there are a lot of ways this discussion can go, Yeah, uh, but it's important to start having it now. There's like a massive opportunity for a deal here, though, isn't there? As we were talking about with Peggy Rick, you give Lael Brainerd the supervisory role and gives you a chance to keep Jay Powell in the job. If that's who Joe Biden's comfortable with, 
Republicans prefer. Isn't that the way to get home? Absolutely. And he's got two other seats to play with. Uh, right. You know, so he can add diversity. He can do some of the things, you know, with uh, with broadening out the role of the people who are serving on the Fed. So, I mean, this is really a win waiting for him to grasp and, and say, hey, this is my leadership. This is my imprint. As you say, yeah. he may never get a Supreme Court appointment, but this is an opportunity that he can actually talk to the, the economy, the markets, and say, I've done the right thing as president. Let's move on. We've got other agenda items. Let's not get this in the way of you know, other more important things, frankly. Something familiar about this conversation. I have to ask you both about the, uh, the House committee investigating January 6th because more subpoenas went out today uh, to more aides to Donald Trump. Yesterday, we heard about Bernie Carrick. We heard about Michael Flynn today, the former White House press secretary. Uh, Kaylee uh, McEnany, along with Stephen Miller, senior advisor, we're getting higher up in the chain here, Rick Davis. And I know that you've been you've been feeling a little bit of an itch here that something big could be coming. Yeah, I don't think that uh, the the January 6th commission is doing this because they just want to cause trouble for the Trump organization, which they are doing. I mean, that's the probably to them the 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 secondary benefit of doing it. But I think they're actually on track to try and paint a picture that has a lot more to do with uh, trying to obstruct the transfer of power, uh, and especially that day, uh, explain a little bit what was behind the motivations for the attack on the Capitol. And, I, and, and this is just really going to be an interesting story when they piece it all together. And in the meantime, you know, they get these distractions you know, by uh, issuing these subpoenas with all kinds of good indications of where they're headed uh, by by what's in the subpoena. These are not just broad subpoenas that aren't right. aren't very interesting. These are like we know where you were the day this happened, and we want to know who you were talking to. And they already have material from people who these who had maybe gotten emails from these individuals that they want to now get into that individual's email addresses. Max, Steve Bannon is still laughing at his subpoena. How many of these names will actually be compelled to talk? Well, that's the challenge, is we can move as high up the chain as, as the commission wants. Uh, in, subpoenas without enforcement are merely suggestions. And this creates a real problem, not just for the committee, but for the attorney general, on how do you proceed with what will almost certainly be a series of very theatrical, very performative obstructions yeah. that will be, be used to drive fundraising and drive media visibility uh, and really take advantage of the fact that Democrats seem very hesitant to put the hammer down and enforce these subpoenas to the full extent that they could. Well, how about criminal contempt, though, Max? I mean, not everybody Steve Bannon is going to get to, you know, get make a big show out of it. I can't imagine that Kaylee McEnany wants to go to jail right now any more than Stephen Miller does. No, it's likely that none of them will. Uh, Sometimes, uh, unfortunately, for acts of just brazen contempt like Steve Bannon did. But quite honestly, if you look back to when Corey Lewandowski testified uh, before Congress, even when these individuals come and quote unquote cooperate, uh, Lewandowski essentially spent his time making a mockery of the committee, uh, barely cooperating to the legal minimum required. And it created a circus that didn't help Democrats at all in their fact finding. And I think that that's the challenge, is how do you bring these individuals forward in a way that is actually constructive to any kind of fact-finding? Rick Davis, how important is it for the commission's findings to be out before the midterm elections? Well, I, I, absolutely. I mean, if this uh, doesn't happen until after the midterm elections, what's the point of having a commission? Um, and I don't mean that because I think huh. it should impact the 
the uh, the 2022 elections, but but like, does it really need to take two years to really go through all this material? I mean, well, you know, look, I mean, the, to, to some degree, they can get the emails that Steve Bannon sent. They don't need to have the sender. They can have the recipients and they know who he's sending emails to. So they're going to have a lot of the stuff that he actually sent. They just don't have his computer sending them. And I think that you make a really good point, Max. Be careful with the Trump crowd. They do not respect the process. They don't respect the legalities. They will make a mockery of your process, especially if you open it up to public uh, uh, viewing. So uh, I, I think the Democrats need to get this work done. They need to get it done quickly. They need to make a conclusion uh, and, and, and then act upon the conclusion. If there's nothing to conclude, then move on. Uh, this will become a burden to that commission and to Congress if it's not done soon. How important are the findings? I'll ask you both this to wrap up this hour. How important are the findings of this commission for a potential future Speaker McCarthy, Max Burns? Well, I think the findings here on the Republican side, you're noticing just the complete lockstep rejection of even the legitimacy of the committee itself. So I can't imagine his, his potential promise to hold the gavel ride on any of this. Not among Republicans. I think he's proven his chops for for making a mockery of the initial selection process. Yeah. And he's been very clear that it's just not a legitimate thing in Republican eyes, which is what Republicans want him to say. How much of a factor is it, Rick, for for his potential future holding the gavel? I don't think it matters to him, but it could impact significantly Donald Trump's plans to run for president in 2024. Boy. Rick Davis, Max Burns, fascinating conversation as always. This is why we always have the panel on Sound On. And of course, the voices from Washington making decisions that impact your life. We'll meet you back here again tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.